you know people who have retired, they just haven't told their boss yet? Well, my guest on this episode of the Get More Success Show is the kind of guy that believes that if old age is catching up, run faster. Uh, after he turned the age of 50-ish, he decided that he's going to give stand-up comedy a crack. Maybe he should go running more often. Let's go out and explore the wildlife when previously he was a couch potato. Let's find out more on this episode of the Get More Success Show. Welcome to the Get More Success Show. He's a guy who never measured a man's success by the size of his wife. It's showtime. 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 And now, here is your host, Warwick Mary. Welcome back to another episode of the Get More Success Show. I'm your host, Warwick Mary. Hey, today I've got someone who I've known him for quite some time, and it's just I've been an avid follower of some of his adventures. He has a podcast. I don't know how he does it, but he puts out about three episodes a week almost uh, on Cool Two. It's uh, two. I've been notified it's two. Um, sometimes I'm sure he sneaks another one in. Cool things entrepreneurs do. Uh, he, he, like myself, he is a, is an MC, but he's a bit more. He's the corporate. He's the the uh, conference catalyst, uh, which is a cool title, and some of the stuff he does is amazing. And he also is focused on the paradox of potential, which I look forward to finding more about. Please welcome all the way from Austin, Texas, Tom Singer. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure to have you here. Hey, Tom, the question I like to start with is, how do you define success from someone who has done a, a, like many, many things, working in law firms, published about 20 books, even worked as a busboy very early on? How do you define success? So, you know, I've probably defined it differently throughout my life. I think when I was younger, I probably defined it around titles and money. And uh, as I got older, I don't, I don't have titles and money. So I had to let go of that. But <laughs> I, think, I think I now define it as sort of peace of mind. Can I look around and say, yeah, I don't suck. I'm all right. And I think that I can do that. And so I think that I, I have success. I mean, yeah. Would I like to have more money? Sure. Would I like more fame? Without question. But I look around and, you know, my wife likes me most days. Uh, my kids, I, I, I met a gentleman who was kind of one of these like get rich, make money, do it this way, separate people from their cash. And he thought I was really good at what I do. And he's like, you need to be doing selling these courses and you need to be doing this. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not interested in any of that. And he said, yeah, but what about the legacy you leave your children? And I said, I have that taken care of. And he looked at me like somehow I owned apartments or I'd done something brilliant to make billions of dollars. And he goes, tell me. And I said, I'm a good dad. And he didn't know how to reply to that because he was <laughs> all about the money. And I told my kids that. And within two days, they both had come to me separately, one by text because she lives far away. And one came in the kitchen. And both of them said, I've been thinking about what you said. And you are a good dad. So that's success. Yeah, that's awesome. Because um, you, I mean, I've seen on your social media feed, you actually have a very close relationship with your kids. How old are your kids now? Uh, I have a daughter who just graduated from college. She's 22 years old. I have a second daughter who is going to be a high school senior. She is 17. Uh, yeah, 17, soon to be 18. And, and, and from friends, having no kids myself, I know all about children. But um, have, <laughs> from, from, from friends who have got kids that age, to still have that kind of relationship where they'll come to you with, you know, and have decent conversations, that's no small feat. Like, that's, 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 that's a pretty cool thing. 
I, I have a joke that I've told for years when, when people have little kids, I always like they have four year, four year old daughter. I go, Oh, you know how cute she is. And they're like, well, yeah. And I'm like, enjoy it. Cause they grow up and turn on you. <laughs> and just sort of a punchline that I throw out there. And my kids always hate it because even when they were like 12, 13, 14, 16, they would always look at me and go, when have we ever turned on you? <laughs> and in the back of your mind, you're just thinking it's going to come one day. It will come. <laughs> I, um, so speaking of um, punchlines and jokes, uh, you've been doing stand-up comedy, which for, for many people who think, well, yeah, well, speakers tell jokes on stage. So stand-up comedy is, you know, that's pretty much the same. So I'm really interested as to why you started doing stand-up comedy and how different is it to being a speaker telling jokes? Uh, well, it's so different. So stand-up comedy is the hardest use of the spoken word that exists out there. I mean, I've, I've been in a movie. I have, uh, so I've done a little bit of acting. I've taken improv classes. Uh, I've given over 850 professional speeches. I've emceed 50 or 60 major events. I, uh, I've hosted almost 500 episodes of a podcast. I've been a guest like this on another couple hundred podcasts. Nothing is as hard <laughs> as stand-up comedy because you were up there, you're naked, and you've got to hit it every 20 to 30 seconds or you have failed. So, and so uh, for something that is so hard, what made you all of a sudden go, I know, I will put myself on the spotlight and, be, and have people in the audience going, make me laugh, funny boy. <laughs> Especially when you're, I was 51 years old. And so I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a pastime. A lot of people take up later in life. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend who is a professional speaker. He speaks on humor in the workplace. His name is Andrew Tarvin. His Ted talk on humor has been watched like 3 million times. The guy is legit. And uh, we're, we're acquaintance friends. We don't hang out and talk on the phone all the time, but I was going to New York where he lives. He is also a professional improv and stand up comic. And I said, I'm going to be in New York. And I told him when he said, oh, come to open mic night with me. And I literally, I looked right at him and said, I would love to watch you work on new material. I love comedy shows. I've never been to an open mic night. How fun to watch you work. And he said, that's not what I'm inviting you to do. And I was like, oh, oh no, 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 no. And, you know, he talked to me about it and said, come on, I've taken others of our mutual friends and uh, you know, just give it a try. Just he goes, did you ever want to do it? And when I was younger, all I wanted to do was be like a comic actor. I wanted to be on, you know, a sitcom and I want to be an actor. That was my, my life's goal. And I never pursued it. And here's the worst part. I grew up in Los Angeles uh, yeah. and, and I never tried. So I decided how bad could it be? I'll write a five minute thing. I pulled out some funny stuff from my speeches where audiences laugh. And about an hour before I went on, I met him and he looked at my stuff and he said, this isn't stand up. This is speech humor. And I'm like, is there a difference? And he was like, Oh God. Yeah. You got to have some punchlines and you can't take this. They only have four or five minutes to do, you know, at an open mic night. So he helped me rewrite it. It wasn't great. Seinfeld is not worried about job security. Cause I showed up at a comedy club in New York and did a five minute set. However, I was challenged because it was hard. I mean, I didn't bomb, but I wasn't, I wasn't the funniest guy of the night. I was somewhere in the lower half. Yeah. But I decided there was something to learn. And so on a whim, I declared, I'm going to do 100 open mic nights. I didn't know if that was going to take me 10 years. I had no idea what that meant. Uh, and fast forward 14 months later, 15 months later, I've done over 60 open mic nights. And I've been invited to be a featured comic in three comedy shows. Oh, I mean, Fantastic. These aren't like in Vegas. These are in Austin and one was in Phoenix. But I'm being put on the roster as one of the people to come see. And I never expected that. So I'm learning a lot. It's challenging. And I'm not good yet, but I'm getting 
So um, being the headlining comedy act that you are, so uh, what is the difference? Because it's the same as like you and I both know, uh, being an MC is very different to being a speaker. And, and we've talked before about how we've got speaker friends going, yeah, yeah, I can do that. And then they do it and they talk to us afterwards. I am never doing that again. Like it is vastly different skill sets. So I'm very interested about, you know, some people go, oh yeah, I'm a funny guy or I'm a funny gal. I tell jokes. What's the difference between being a funny person and being a stand-up comic? Well, a lot of it has to do with uh, being up, you know, and you can be at a dinner party and tell a funny joke and, you know, people are sort of paying attention. But when you're up on stage, the expectation, like if I'm at a dinner party and someone tells a joke, I don't expect them to be hysterical. Mm. If somebody is up on stage at a comedy show, whether it's an open mic night or something else, I have an expectation that they're going to make me laugh. And there are certain rules of comedy that exist as far as how you set it up and how you get to a punchline. And, and I struggle with this. What I'm very good at is coming up with funny scenarios. Like I can see something like I was on an airplane the other day and I watched someone put like an oversized piece of luggage like into the overhead bin and they pushed it in. They left it hanging out and they looked around as if nobody could see like they were somehow invisible and they took their seat like three rows away and the bag was still hanging out like eight inches. Like that, that bin was not closing. And I took out my little comedy notebook that I travel with and I wrote that down because there's something really funny there. Yeah. I don't know what it is yet. I mean, <laughs> wrote that down a couple weeks ago and I'm like still thinking that was really funny the way the person sort of just they literally looked around like none of you see me doing this yeah like, yeah, yeah. but there's a you got to have a punchline. yeah, like, yeah. so that's a funny story and you laughed and and I've told that to a few other people and they laugh but I don't know where the punchline is yet and so to do real stand-up you've got to be able to have scenario punchline scenario punchline you got to have them coming every 20 to 30 seconds yeah. and then you've got to be able to call back and you've got to build it it's a lot of, it, it's the hardest use of the spoken word to be done well. Yeah. And I, I did a, one of the shows I did, I invited, I decided just to invite everybody I knew and like 35 people came. And it was like half the audience was there to see me. And I was like the second of six comics and uh, I was not the, the headliner by any means, but uh, it was nerve wracking because it was people I knew from all different areas of my life. And afterwards, people were, they were surprised it was good. I mean, I'll be honest. Some of my friends were like, wow, I, who knew? <laughs> you were funny. <laughs> you, you made us laugh. And they said, you were like the second, you know, you might've been the second funniest one of the night and maybe, yeah. maybe third. But, uh, <laughs> but that was, hey, you're in top half. But the thing was, was that I've spent a year and 60 open mic nights. This was only a couple weeks ago to come up with 10 minutes of material. But that's all I got. I mean, if you want me to stand up and do 10 great minutes, I've yeah. got 10 almost great minutes. I mean, it's funny scenarios with punchlines, but it's taken me a year to get there. And I'm looking at these people who have Netflix specials and they're doing an hour. And I'm like, oh my God, it would take me 10 years to get to an hour. Oh yeah. And it's like, and I watched Wanda Sykes the other day on her Netflix special and man, like that is just Brilliant. gold. And I'm just, oh, to, to take so much and cram it into just an hour and have us continually laughing. That's a skill. That is a skill. It's uh, so my favorite of all the Netflix specials is Hassan Minaj homecoming mm -hmm. King. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen that, go watch it. The, the story arc of the way he tells the story of his life in life, in his family and in comedy. And then the way he ties it all together and does the callbacks. It's, it's genius. Just like Wanda Sykes special is genius. Yeah. And you know, I don't know that I can ever get to that level. I also don't know that that's my goal, but 
I don't think I'm going to stop at 100 open mics. I, I, I think I want to do more with this. I just don't. So is it addictive? Like, you know, you've, you've obviously started and, you, and you're doing this and, you know, watching your journey on social media, there's sometimes you've come on and go, oh, man, I bombed so bad last night. And other times you're like, oh, I kicked it out of the park. Is there this, even when you bomb, is there a sort of this addictive nature of like, I'm loving the challenge of this? You know, like I said, as a kid, I wanted to be an actor or a comic. I think that's why I'm a speaker and an MC is I, I like to be on stage. And it's yeah. not like oh, my ego. I always tell people when they're a speaker, you and I have friends who are speakers who go, oh, I have no ego. You can't be <laughs> in this business if you don't have an ego. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I like that part, but that's not why, that's not 100% of why I get on stage as a speaker. Yeah. I, I like sharing the information. I like being a contributor to something like a conference. Yeah. So going to an open mic night, I'm not really, a, I mean, open mic night is what it is. It's not a comedy show. It's not this new thing. So it's not addictive. Like I have to be on stage because yeah. I don't, I could walk away from doing open mic nights at any minute. And my life is just as fulfilling, just as successful, if you will, yeah. as it was, but it's that incremental little teeny baby steps that I'm taking that if you were to have looked at me at the 20th open mic night and now at 60, the delta, I mean, it's not even on the same math chart. I need a yeah. math genius to draw me a, a, a pie chart on it, but it's not even the same. And so now I think, well, what will it be at 175? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm more challenged to see, can I get out of this, eh, he's okay level to be like, wow, that was really funny. Um, and I also think there's a message here because I started it at 51. And I went out and tried it and I've stuck with it for over a year. And I, I'm pretty sure I will complete two years to get to the hundred open mic nights. And I'm assuming I'll keep doing it after that. I, I think there's a lesson. I think there's a story. I, you know, I don't know that uh, Jimmy Fallon is going to bring me onto the tonight show to talk about my comedy journey. Um, but I do think that there's a lesson for people. And when I talk about it in my speeches, cause I have a whole section where I talk about trying new things I've been talking about that for years before this happened. This was a byproduct of me doing living my walk, right? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Think, no, I teach people try new things. I get invited to do something new and I go, no, thank you. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I talk about the comedy and afterwards people line up three and four people deep and they tell me I would never do that. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. I've always wanted to do that. Tell me how to, how, tell me how to try it. And so it's resonating with people. So that's the other thing is there's, there's something bigger than me in what I'm doing. And that challenges the heck out of me. So talk to me a little bit about uh, trying new things. Cause uh, you're, uh, you have a history of being a self-confessed couch potato. Uh, and, and I, and I've seen, you've got some merch around the trying new things, be it stickers, t-shirts, you name it, you've got it. So how important is the trying new things message to you and, and why? So when I turned 50, which is three years ago, I made a personal commitment that I was going to make age 50 to 75 the best years of my life. Now, that's a big commitment because I've had a pretty good life and I didn't have anything bad. I wasn't having a midlife crisis or anything. I just, I realized that my dad made a decision in the last quartile of his life that he didn't know how long he could live. He was a widower. He was over 70. He just decided I'm going to enjoy it. Well, he lived 30 years. He lived to be almost hundred. He was 99 when he passed away. And I thought, why wait until the last quartile? Why not just say, I'm going to embrace it. And so I took on this attitude of, I'm going to start saying yes to things that scare me. I'm going to do things that I might have rationalized my way out of before. And I started interviewing people who are really successful and try new things came up when I asked, what, why do some people go and have more success? There's a lot of reasons, but one of the top reasons was they said, I tried. You know, I was successful because I'm the one who did it. And yeah. I thought, well, shoot, that's a good motto. So I, I interpreted those words. I made them try new things. And 
for me, it is a way to remind myself, I, I've discovered this about myself in the last three years. I'm one of those people, and I think a lot of your listeners are this way. I've spent a lot of time saying no to things that I thought I might fail at and only yes to things where I was pretty confident I was going to be good. Yeah, yeah. And people say, well, but you became a speaker. Well, I already knew I was a good speaker because in high school, I, you know, I could give a speech. People are like, oh, that was better than average speech. I got A's in speech. So it didn't scare me because I was naturally good at it. The comedy, I was not, I'm not a naturally funny guy. Mm -hmm. And so I, I push myself into this. So the try new things has become pivotal. Uh, I'm scared of heights. I jumped off the stratosphere in, in uh, Las Vegas and I've been uh, zip lining in Costa Rica and at Pikes Peak in Colorado. And uh, you know, I, I've just been, I, I'm of course blanking out on all the things I've tried, but the last three years, <laughs> you know, eight or 10 different things that my natural reaction would be no. So I'm not outdoorsy right? I'm a, I'm a city kid. So to yeah. me, like a great vacation would be to come to Sydney. It wouldn't be to go to the outback. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And yet my daughter is really outdoorsy. And so she challenged me along this line when I turned 50, that she wanted to do things like go to the Grand Canyon and go to Yosemite. And I naturally would have been like, no, you mean Boston, right? Like, that <laughs> sounds like an awesome vacation. So we've been to Yosemite, we've been to the Grand Canyon. She and I'm sure when you say go to visit these places, it's not drive there and go, well, this is nice and get in the car and drive away. Uh, I suspect it's go here and let's slip around for miles. Hiking. There's hiking involved. She and I, like a trail ended in Yosemite and she and I, like we could tell people had forged to get to where the trail started again. So we like climbed up a hillside. These aren't things that I do. <laughs> uh, but this is part of the things like, you know, it's like, okay, there were other people there. We weren't going to get lost. There was like 12 mm -hmm. of us. We didn't know them, but they were like, let's forge through. And I'm like, let's, and there we went. <laughs> her, her lifelong dream since she was like 12 and she's 17, almost 18, was to hike the Appalachian Trail through. And so I've made a deal with her, graduate college and I'll go with you. And that's five and a half years away. And so this city kid who never really has camped out, suddenly I'm like going camping with friends because I'm like, apparently I'm going to have to live in a tent for six months, uh, <laughs> you know, in 2025. So I'm, uh, I've, I've committed that, you know, when she graduates college, we're going. I've started a savings account to make sure my wife can pay the mortgage because I won't be speaking and emceeing for six months. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're, we're making, you know, provisions to do that. This is not something I would have said yes to at 45 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how does trying new things tap into the paradox of potential? So I started re around this same time that I came with this, I'm going to have a better life and I'm going to try new things. I started realizing that a lot of people were telling me they felt like they weren't living up to their potential in their careers. And I felt this way. And so I started a formal study. I've surveyed over 500 people. I've interviewed about 100 of them. And I've asked them, how do you feel about your potential and the results you're getting? And the keynote wrote itself because people gave me the answers. This is what holds me back. People who are super excelling told me this is why I kick butt over everybody else. And so I've started working with companies, going in and working with their teams. And I call it the paradox of potential because we get so excited when we hire Becky. She has so much potential. And a year later, we're transitioning her out of the company. Well, how come? She had potential. Well, because potential doesn't equal results. Hmm. And so this whole try new things falls into it because there's really 10 answers that help people get across what's holding them back. Now, you don't need all 10, and I don't need all 10. But if you were to look at a team of 25 people, all of them have three or four things that are holding them back. And so two or three of these answers helps them. And the, the problem is when someone hires someone like you or I to come in and speak, they want us to build a bridge across the gap 
and put everybody on one bus and drive them across the bridge. That isn't realistic because people are being held back by different things. So there's not one bridge. Plus, in my research, your potential isn't a static thing. So as you drive across the bridge, eventually you're, you're going to read a book. You're going to listen to a cool podcast. You're going to listen to a speaker. You're going to whatever. You're going to learn more. You're going to be challenged. You're going to get a mentor. Your potential is going to shift farther out and you're going to fall back into that abyss. So we don't build a bridge. We need to build a scaffolding. And we don't drive everyone across in one vehicle. Everyone goes at their own pace because we all have different roadblocks and different solutions. And one of the solutions is try new things. And so it's all married together. I mean, it's yeah. just, you know, it's just all partnered together. And, and I'm out there trying, you know, different stuff. And it's, I'm getting different results. It's helping. I'm a better speaker and master of ceremonies yeah. than I was 14 months ago. And I recently emceed a large conference. And the, the meeting planner said, you, I hired you back for the third year because you're good. You were better. She said, why were you better? And I said, it's the stand-up. And she goes, yeah. but you weren't doing stand-up. And I go, no, but I was more playful. And my example was one of the speakers talked about breaking rules. And so when I came up after he was done, I came up barefoot. And I made a joke that I always thought as the master of ceremonies, I had to wear shoes, but he told me I can break any rule I want. And then I took off my coat and I threw it on the ground. And I said, who said the master of ceremonies has to wear a blazer? And then I grabbed my belt buckle and I undid my belt. And I just stood there for like the count of three. And then I tucked the belt back into the loop. And I said, I think pants are still a rule. And the audience, <laughs> great. they all laughed. And all, I wouldn't have done that a year ago. Yeah, yeah. I would have been too nervous a year ago. But now I'm, I'm, I have better timing and I'm, I have more play. I'm willing to play. Yeah. And that's come out of this whole journey. It's all yeah. intertwined. And I think... Um, that willingness to play is so important, both you know at, at an event like that, but also more in the workplace. I think people take themselves very, very seriously, um, and particularly companies. Companies take themselves seriously, even though the individuals within the companies might not. And so that restricts people. Do you do you think that would restricts people because they think they have to be serious? I, I spent my whole life thinking I had to be serious. I mean, I, I had a corporate career, and I thought I had to appear a certain way, and. You know, I've, the other thing I've learned through doing the stand-up is I've learned a lot about sort of perception and bias and privilege because I, I look like I stepped out of Accountants Today magazine. If you look at me, you know, I'm a, I'm a tall, skinny, white guy. You know, I, I, I look like, you know, I look like Ron Howard did in Happy Days, the old TV show. I mean, I'm, I'm a dorky looking dude. I look like I'd be the CEO's brother. Uh, but the thing is, is that when I show up at a business event, everybody talked to me. But in the comedy world, I'm 25 years older than everybody. I'm, you know, pretty square looking. Nobody talked to me. Nobody, you know, nobody, you know, nobody talked to me. So I spent a whole career playing into this image of I look like corporate Tom and I played the role of corporate Tom. <laughs> and as it turns out, that's only a little piece of who I am. And yeah, yeah. all of a sudden I'm able to take into my career, into my life, the fact that I'm a whole person. And, you know, I, it turns out I can hang with these 25 year olds. Some of them have become my friends now, but it didn't start that way. They looked at me when I showed up at these open mic nights locally as who brought their dad. Yeah. You know, <laughs> nobody, I, I was just, I was not, I'd, I'd say, hi, how you guys doing? They'd look at me like, you're kidding me, right? Are you a narc? Do you work for the police department? <laughs> Tom, it's been great chatting with you. I could keep chatting for ages, but uh, you know, 20 minutes there's, yeah. there's, there's cool things to do out there and I've got to try new things. Hey, um, if people want to find out more about you or find out more about your podcast, how's the best way to, for people to get in touch? TomSinger.com. That's T-H-O-M-S-I-N-G-E-R.com or any of the social medias at TomSinger. Fantastic. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great chatting with you. 
Hey, thanks for having me. You've been listening to another episode of the Get More Success Show. I look forward to your company next time. Thanks for listening to the Get More Success Show with Warwick Merry. Continue the conversation with other successful people over at getmoresuccess.com. That's where you'll find all the show notes as well as a link to our Facebook group that we'd love for you to join. Getmoresuccess.com is also where you'll find all the information you need to connect with me, your host, Warwick Merry. Thanks for listening and until next time, enjoy your success.